This Wellness Couch podcast brought to you by our brand new Facebook group called The Wellness Couch Tribe. Come join us and chat about any episode at any time. Keep up to date with all our events and connect with a like-minded group of wellness enthusiasts just like you. To join The Wellness Couch Tribe, simply search for The Wellness Couch Tribe on Facebook. The Real Food Real is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 216 of The Real Food Real, we are again joined by our regular guest, Dr. Damien Christoph, to dissect dairy. In today's episode, you will learn the difference between low-carb healthy fat and low-carb high fat, especially when it comes to a conventional high-fat approach that is often packed full of dairy. We cover the influence of the food pyramid and industry-fed information regarding the calcium bone health conversation in the West. We also debunk some common dairy-based myths surrounding the impact of lactose, probiotics in store-bought yogurt, and so much more. Hello, Damo. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. It's so great to be back with you. I enjoy these moments we have. Yeah, me too. Me too. I always love our conversations. And today's topic is dairy, the D word. Mm. Wow. (laughs) I know. It's a biggie, isn't it? It's such a big, big topic. Um, Every day, I reckon there'd be somebody asking me about, um, you know, what dairy should I have? How much calcium do I need to eat? Um, Is dairy actually as bad as what we've told or is it really that good? Um, So it's a great, great subject for you and I to kind of tackle, you know open it up. Yeah, for sure. And I'm the same. I speak about this with nearly every client and often multiple times because as everyone knows, you know, my model is that LCHF, which stands for lower carbohydrate, healthy fat. It's often confused as keto. (laughs) Um, And definitely there are a lot of keto models that are quite dairy 
centric. So Mm. I find that's coming into the space a lot more these days with the popularity of keto. So that's really interesting. Mm. Mm, Absolutely. Well, look, I remember 20 something years ago when I started doing keto programs in my practice, this is probably back when you were in high school, Steph, (laughs) Um, I was doing, um, or maybe even primary school, I was doing keto programs back then and we'd use cheese and we'd use um, Greek yogurt and ricotta in our recipes and all these sorts of things because you can bring about ketosis using dairy. Like that can happen. So um, it was, you know, it was a way in which you could bring people into ketosis. But then you ask the question, you know, are we doing low carb, healthy fat, or are we just doing low carb, high fat? Like, what's the difference there? Yeah. And so um, that's an important distinction for you and I to, to make today. You know, particularly we um, pull apart this particular subject. Um, yeah, I think it's 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 going to be enlightening for a lot of people. I know. I feel like it's a big can of worms. I'm like, well, where do I start? <laughs> um, I, I think, know. Well, we, mm, we could on. almost start with the food pyramid, couldn't we? And that's mm. kind of where dairy became uber popular through the 80s. People were told that they needed to have heaps of dairy, um, to, particularly women. And there was a very heavy media campaign and marketing campaign suggesting that if you didn't consume dairy, that you would not reach your daily requirement for calcium intake and mm-hmm. as a result you would have osteoporosis it was highly <laughs> likely that your head would fall off and you would die and that was kind of how it all went you know the rev ads were you know were like that physical ads were like that um, all of the um the dairy ads at the time back in the 80s used to speak about the you know one glass of milk would give you a daily requirement for dairy and 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 then Somewhere along the line, we got told that we need to have three to four serves of dairy every single day in order to meet our calcium requirements, um, regardless of how big or tall or strong or weak you were or how much exercise you did. Everyone needed to have four serves, which was more serves of dairy than fresh fruit and vegetables, or fresh fruit at least. And so that was always you know, kind of a bit surprising for me. But the industry fed information is, uh, is basically how dietitians are trained. And dietitians, you know, whether we like it or not, Steph, um, from the old model are the ones that continue to help the government form policy around what foods should be introduced into our schools, uh, what education takes place around uh, food nutrition and nutrition information in our schools and in our community. Um, And anybody who goes against the government policies must be a heretic and is most likely um, kooky, wacky and crazy, much like you and I. So this is, um, and people don't like to be wrong. Everyone likes to be right. Um, people don't like to be ousted as being kind of strange or weird. Um, but really, we need to kind of look into this and go, well, is dairy actually really good for us? Is there any benefit from it? Uh, and, and, and where's this information all coming from in the first place? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that we've absolutely got to make sure our eyes are open to the potential, you know, vested interest or the influence of the industry, which, you know, we speak about a lot when it comes to, you know, carbohydrates and our food pyramid and those guidelines that, you know, you and I talk about all the time that um, have certainly softened over recent years, but are still very strong in the West. And, and dairy is really similar. Like the, the, the dairy industry have a huge influence on our dietary guidelines in Australia. And yeah, we see that flow down into the training that our dietitians are given, obviously the advice that then is given to consumers. And this is where the fear element comes in. Like you said, you know, if you don't have your 1000 milligrams of 
calcium per day, yeah, your your bone strength is, you know, destined for disaster and doomed. Yeah. And obviously there are slightly different calcium requirements depending on age. We know women over 50 and men over 70 are are recommended the 1300, the 1300 milligrams per day. And yeah, a lot of the statements would tell us that the only way it's possible to get those values in um, are from those dairy foods, the, the three serves of dairy per day, of which an example would be a glass of milk, so 250 mils of milk, a tub of yogurt, so 200 grams, and a slice of cheese, which is 40 grams. And, you know, that's what we're being told to this day. It's even on the Osteoporosis Australia website. So no wonder wow. people are, are stuck in the 80s, essentially. <laughs> Well, it's amazing because some of these websites are set up by people that are well-meaning um, mm-hmm. and and they firmly believe the information that they've been fed, uh, which is fair enough. You know, like if, if you consider the information that you and I have been fed, Steph, we, we form an, an opinion around food and nutrition and lifestyle that we firmly believe in, we subscribe to, we have information to support it, um, much the same as, say, anybody else might as well. The problem, I suppose, is is that people are looking for what's right and what's wrong, and so they're claiming that science can determine what's right and what's wrong, um, or what's good and what's bad. And so, if it's scientifically proven, or if there's evidence-based research, then people would suggest that that's the answer. And I would contend that that's actually limiting our ability to make rational decision, have rational thought or conversation, and uh, and that's a big concern for me. So, I, um, I, you know, for me, I'm more about provide the information, have people hear it, listen to it, dissect it, milk it, understand it, and then from that point go and make a decision about what they think is going to work for them. And then if they come to me for support, I'll go, okay, well, this is how I see things happening. This is what I think you could do to change. Um, and I know that that's the way that in which you go as well. But if we look at what dietitians have been taught, many nutritionists have been taught, what the, what the medical profession is teaching, uh, what the government access to information actually is and who funds that information, it's very easy um, to, to learn and very easy to see that there's the, not so much coercion, but there's definitely, um, and not conspiracy, but there's definitely a very heavy um, funding arm to information from the dairy industry. And, yeah. and that's easy to find and easy to trace. Yeah. Yeah, really important that we do set the scene with that so that, you know, we can break down some of these additional myths that we've all been exposed to for most of us, the majority of our life. So, yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. So I know this is a massive can of worms because I'm sure that there is going to be, you know, part of the discussion around the individual nature of things naturally. But surely, how... um. Where do you put dairy in your real food pyramid or conversation? Well, I think just by itself. Um, in, in fact, I suppose the way in which we get access to it in Australia um, is, is highly processed. You know, mm. every single little bit of the dairy um, process is, is a part of, you know, significant alteration of what it really should be. So if we just got cow's milk, Mm-hmm. Um, straight from the cow, uh, there would be a host of other benefits in it 
um, that we don't see from the packaged containers, regardless of whether or not it's skinny milk, trim milk, um, A2 milk or Zymol or whatever else. Like all of those milks are all highly processed to be standardized. And cows don't make the one tasting milk. It's very important to be clear about that. You know, cows, based on their grazing habits, based on the type of food they're getting at the time, how much water they're drinking, um, what stage they are in the lactation process, you know, once they've um, given birth to their calves and, and whether or not the cows are actually stressed, that alters the flavor of milk. But we never, ever see a change in the flavor of our milk if we actually buy products uh, from the supermarket that have been highly processed. And it's because every little piece of it is actually pulled apart and then reconstructed. So when we get the milk from the cow, it goes into a big vat, it gets taken off by a big truck into put into big containers where, you know, the separation process takes place. So the fat skimmed from the top, um, the milk is then um, separated. There's components of the milk that are actually taken out. Um, so you'll see that whey is often taken out and then that's used, um, you know, in, in the protein powder industries um i know it's not a, a separate industry but let's just call it a protein powder industry um that's taken out of the milk but it's also taken out of the product when um they're making cheese from the cream um there's whey that's separated there and that becomes another product uh and then there's a standardization process that takes place in the, around the amount of water the amount of fat and the amount of um flavor that actually goes into um a, a container uh, so that the flavor remains consistent and the, and the texture remains consistent. So that can only be achieved through processing. And, and for me, that almost renders um, milk in itself not a whole food anymore, if that mm. makes sense. Um, but, yeah, you know, sure. there's other things that we get from milk and dairy that I do consider to be whole foods. Um, and, and maybe we can talk about those. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like it's not dissimilar again to carbs. Like when I talk about carbohydrates, I'm really clear to talk about them in distinct, like two separate groups. You know, we've got our refined carbohydrates, which we're trying to obviously minimize or avoid, but then we've got our whole food carbohydrates, which are really important to include. So I'm really clear to make that distinction. I do not want to be demonizing carbohydrates as a whole. And I feel similar when it comes to dairy. I almost put milk over there by itself because of, like you said, it's incredibly processed. It's very different on our shelf as to that original, um, that original milk that comes from the cow. And then there are other examples of dairy, which I think may have their place in someone's real food template. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can look at kefir, for example. That's often made with dairy. Uh, we could look at yogurt. There's certain yogurts that are very, very good for us and probiotic in nature. Um, there's other uh, things like soft cheeses are very, very good. Feta cheese, for example. So there's there's different ways in which we can get nourished from dairy. But I think the caution, well, the caution that I've I've given people over the last, you know, let's say decades since my mindset started to shift around it because I was, I used to be very anti-dairy. I was like, mm-hmm. dairy will kill you. Dairy will <laughs> give you cancer. It's the cause of all your infections. You know, I used to be that way. And so I was very rigid in my thinking. But but these days I'm, I'm looking at, at ways in which people can bring these foods which have beautiful flavors and have some nutritional benefit um, into their diet. But I want people to think about where else they might get calcium from. I don't want people to think, oh, well, I've got enough dairy, so now I've got my calcium. 
I'd much prefer that people see the food for what it actually provides. So it could be protein, it could be carbohydrate, it could be fat, it could be vitamin D, it could be calcium. Um, so think about the other things that the food is actually providing to your body rather than just thinking, okay, well, I've got my dairy, so now I've got my calcium. So I like to put that context around it. Yeah, for sure. And if we talk about milk, like a lot of people are really unaware of the significant sugar that's in milk, right? It's obviously not table sugar big, and you know, I'm not saying it's got any added sugar, but we absolutely have to factor in the amount of lactose that milk contains. So lactose is that milk sugar. And I'm talking to people that are having, you know, maybe four lattes a day. I won't mention any names, Dr. Ian Northeast, who used to drink cow's milk before we met. <laughs> the volume of milk that you would consume without realizing per day could easily yeah. equate to your recommended intake of sugar and most of my clients are really surprised to learn that in line with that mm. it's amazing but also like just to get all of that calcium into your body from one source is um is also quite a challenge and to have exposure to just a, a a type of protein you know recently somebody said to me um you know is gluten really that bad and this is maybe a conversation for you and i to have another time steph but I said, well, gluten is a problem if it's the only protein you get access to. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, if gluten's the only protein that you're eating, let's say, for example, you have wheat bix for breakfast or a couple of slices of toast, then you have, um, and let's say you're vegetarian and you're eating heaps of gluten, um, that's even worse. Like, then you have maybe a, a croissant or a muffin at morning tea, then you have a sandwich with a spread at lunchtime, then you have um, some cheese and biscuits or maybe just some biscuits, they'll leave the cheese out because that's another protein, just some biscuits um, at afternoon tea um, or maybe some crackers and dip. Uh, and then at dinner time, you have some pasta. Um, the only protein you've actually given yourself is a protein that comes from wheat. And so that's when things become a problem. So if the only, if, if a significant amount of protein that's coming into your diet is only from cow's milk then or dairy, then that becomes a problem too because your body's, not designed to only have one type of protein source going into it. It needs multiple different types of protein sources to, to nourish itself, not just one source. Yeah, beautiful. That whole diversity conversation, which we often come back to. Mm. So with some of the, the options that you mentioned that may be suitable, suitable like the kefir, certain yogurt, some cheeses, um, I did just want to talk about those in comparison to something like milk because one of the other issues that I have with milk outside of the processing side of things and the significant you know, sugar content is that it's very spiking to our insulin levels. You know, We call it yeah. insulinogenic in nature. And this is, again, something that people aren't aware of. So you, know, you might be setting up the goal to have breakfast, um, perhaps no morning snack, but you're having a, a large latte, you know, you're completely, completely interfering with that window between breakfast and lunch and impacting your blood sugar as a result. So I think this really needs to be factored into the overall equation, especially when we're talking about real food. And obviously what we're trying to do is create this fantastic blood sugar control. I agree with you, Steph. And you know, there's there's probably a number of different mechanisms. Well, there is a number of different mechanisms by which milk um, and dairy can actually cause a spike in insulin mm -hmm. um, within the body, or a spike in sugar within the body, with a subsequent spike in insulin, and then potentially some degree of insulin resistance. And we see this in children too. Like 
we know, and a lot of research came from New Zealand, um, to look at the risk of type 1 diabetes in children fed cow's milk um, that contain the A1 milk protein. Hence the reason why the A2 or the Jersey cow milk protein um, became so popular and uh, as opposed to the Frisian cow, which has massive yield of milk, but um, poor quality milk if we were to compare it. And so we, we know that there's, there's things to do with the protein that's in milk that could affect um, blood sugar control. Uh, and then, and, and that, that will be down mechanisms associated with inflammation um, and uh, the immune system uh, firing off I suppose bullets and cannons and um, and and other um, defense mechanisms to protect the body from those proteins that are actually entering into the bloodstream um, that the body just probably doesn't need in those in those individuals. And let's just be clear here: that milk, that type of milk, isn't going to cause diabetes in every single child, and it's not going to cause diabetes or weight gain in every single person. However, if there is a risk of diabetes. Uh, in your family or a risk of diabetes in your children or there's a autoimmune disease risk uh, in your life or in your family, then these are the sorts of things that you might consider. If you're already overweight and you're thinking, oh, how am I going to get this under control? Then you might consider that dairy could be one of those things that's, that's spiking your insulin uh, through an increase in blood sugar. And then the offshoot to that would be that given that insulin is very pro-inflammatory, um, that would contribute to other you know, inflammatory processes within the body as well as immune reactions to maybe the sugar, lactose, or maybe one of the proteins, whey, or another protein, casein. So um, there's many different things in milk that could be affecting your dairy that could be affecting you. Yeah, I think this is a really important area because, you know, the inflammation conversation is huge and there's different mechanisms like you discussed. It could be the blood sugar impact or the insulin impact or it could be, yes, absolutely, the protein element or... The, the lactose. So I definitely agree with you about looking at family history. Um, but what are some other ways we could start to explore if dairy is inflammatory to us? That's a great question. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to check in is just to see how your body's feeling after you've had a glass of dairy or you've had a piece of cheese mm-hmm. or you've had a couple of spoonfuls of yogurt. Are you forming mucus at the back of your throat? Do you get a post-nasal drip as a result? Um, that's a really easy thing to see. Acne is a really uh, fascinating thing because mm-hmm. we see a clear association with you know, adolescents with acne and their dairy consumption. So we, we definitely see that. Um, the other thing that we would notice too is how do you feel in your tummy after you've had um, exposure to dairy? Do you feel loose in your bowels or do you feel very bloated? Do you, does it create constipation? Um, some people have a very, very dry stool and, uh, and, and are incredibly constipated with a sticky movement when they do get a chance to move it. And, and that is associated with a lactose intolerance. And, and then we've got you know, other issues where people might get you know, diarrhea as a result of, of, the, of a protein imbalance within their um, microbiome. So it's interesting to think of those different things too. Yeah, definitely. They're great signs. I think it is that, yeah, we know it's going to be individual, like you said, and we always say it's not a one size fits all. So we're not saying that it doesn't suit everybody, but it really is about being aware and in tune with your body. So I share this a lot, but if I eat dairy that's cows based, so I mean, I'm not a milk person at all, but I do like my occasional hard cheese. If I go too crazy, I will get inflamed wrists and sore knees. So for totally. me, not your typical 
tummy, bowels, those really obvious symptoms that you would normally link with investigating a food. So I wanted to bring that up because it is important to think systemic. We know the influence Mm. of the gut is systemic. It can impact anything and everything. So if you are thinking about experimenting with your individual tolerance to dairy, I think write a little bit of a log, a symptom log and and include anything that pops up. If it's your skin changes in hormones, perhaps, which is another topic I want to get to in a moment with you, Damo, absolutely any digestive changes, look in the toilet bowl, but also think about how the body's performing as a whole. Are there other inflammatory things that are flaring following consumption? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you know, that's a, a, such a great thing. Um, a sore big toe, you know, often people <laughs> go, I've got a sore big toe. Um, and, and that whilst, you know, you know a, a big problem for that might be gout, but it could just be an inflammatory diet. And a lot of people talk about um, the effect of dairy uh, on, on lining the stomach before you go out for a big night. You would have heard this one before, Steph. Yeah. And People go, oh, you know, if it's protecting me from alcohol, then it must be a good thing. But it lines the stomach and then mucus uh, forms as a result of the reaction of the dairy on the gastrointestinal system. So your body's mounting a response straight away. Uh, And so it becomes then a priority um, for protection. It's protecting the gut from the dairy, not protecting the gut from uh, from the alcohol. Although there might be a side effect, but your body's trying to protect you from all the dairy. So... You know, we might think that it's gout, but you might actually have a sore toe. Like you said, Steph, it could be a sore wrist. It might be um, sore sore shoulders. Um, It could be any other type of pain or lack of energy um, coming from the consumption of dairy. Yeah, awesome. So really important to note those symptoms. Um, And with my clients, whenever they're investigating that sort of individual response to food, I get them to try and keep everything constant. So like what is a normal day for you? Um, Come off dairy for um, a couple of days, maybe do 72 hours with no other changes. And then obviously note any of those symptoms or changes in symptoms, depending on which direction you're going in. Um, And then obviously introduce a small amount and yet yeah, do that contrast in terms of symptoms and that overall systemic approach. Do you think that 72 hours is long enough, Steph? Um, I think that it will give you a pretty good start to the insight. So for a lot of people, it's that initial commitment. And then if they are noticing a huge difference, I think that will feed the compliance in terms of, all right, do we need to do 30 days off dairy from there? Um, most people like that I see are, are pretty, you know, interested in taking more of a deep dive and, and they're happy to commit to a month off, like a 30-day trial. Um, but yeah. in terms of, I guess what I really refer to when I talk about that 72 hours is that the inflammatory response is not, not always going to happen straight away. It can take a little while to develop. So, you know, we're so used to correlating, you know, if it's diarrhea, it's that evacuation. Most times it's going to happen fairly much straight away. But things like the inflammatory process is going to take a little bit of time. So you might eat dairy on a Sunday, but not feel it, the effects of it until Tuesday or Tuesday night. So I really want to just be clear that it can take a little bit of time. So you don't want to miss that window by assuming you're okay because you felt amazing on Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I um I, I see a lot of children too uh, coming to my practice with uh, eczema in the folds of their arms or in the folds of their knees. Um, and it's often a moist, wet uh, eczema that's that cracks and bleeds. And 
And that traditionally from a naturopathic perspective um, was always seen to be associated with dairy. Um, whether it's lactose, whether it's casein, whether it's whey, whatever it is, we, we knew many, many years ago, let's say 40 or 50 years ago, that that was the case. And so we'd you know, often suggest that people remove dairy from their diet and sometimes that, that um, eczema doesn't go away. And so the question or the line of questioning that often takes place after that is, you know, did you, did you eliminate dairy? And the common misconception is, or the common um, reporting is, is that, oh, yes, we did. We, we decreased it, you know, quite significantly. I decreased it. You know, I, I made sure that she had, you know, probably at least half of what she was normally having. And there's a misconception or a misperception that just by reduction that that could be, um, you know, the answer, when in reality it's the elimination that's going to bring about the shift and the change. The other thing is too that, what I found with if, if a problem has been there for long enough, it could take longer than just, you know, a week. It could, it could in fact take, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, a month, 30 days, maybe two months to really just quieten the whole of the nervous system down. It could be quite significant. Yeah, I'm absolutely with that. I, I'm glad you raised that. And that's why I guess, um, it can be a little bit of a commitment for some people, but while we're here, I just wanted to share, um, another way to get that 1000 milligrams per day. So, you know, before I mentioned that um, the Australian recommendations are the one cup of milk, the 200 grams of yogurt and the 40 grams of cheese, I want people to be really aware that you can do it without including any dairy at all. Like it is absolutely possible. It's actually, you know, three to four cups of greens, including things like broccoli, kale, you know, our dark leafy greens, which hopefully most people are eating Anyway, they are if they're a client of mine. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. One small can of sardines and a couple of tablespoons of either tahini, sesame seeds, or almonds. So to me, that's, that's really reasonable. You know, I think yeah. that should give people the awareness and the context that it's actually not these huge volumes of, you know, plant based options that we would often equate to being, you know, a guideline, but impossible to consume. I think it's really practical to do from a dairy free standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. There's a a really interesting uh, thing that I used to speak about in the power of food. I've since taken it out many years ago, but um, it was that a cup of broccoli as, or yeah, a cup of, I think it actually might even be a hundred grams of broccoli provides the same amount of bioavailable calcium as 250 mils of milk. Mm. And so from a bioavailability perspective, just 100 grams of broccoli will provide the same amount of bioavailable calcium as what 250 mils of milk will. Now, it's important to note here that there's more calcium coming from the cow's milk than there is from the broccoli, but the ability of the body to absorb it Mm -hmm. in such high concentration from a cow's milk product versus from a plant-based product um, is very, very different, uh, hugely different. And so there's benefit in trying to get access to plant-based calcium supplement or calcium foods, calcium-rich foods to enhance your calcium intake. But another study that came out um, a number of years ago was that if you've achieved a 1,000 milligrams of calcium intake in the day, for every 600 milligrams of extra calcium that you consume, your absorption of calcium decreases by 50%. So that you will decrease more in your absorption by eating more calcium every single day. Now, that is a result of the effect of um, 
high levels of calcium, iron, hydrochloric acid levels in the gut, um, and the disruption from mineral balance in the gastrointestinal system associated with having excess calcium in an area um, that, that probably shouldn't have that much calcium in it. So you, you are actually affecting the way in which the body absorbs calcium if you take in too much calcium. Yeah, I love that. Again, it's the whole, you know, Goldilocks scenario. Yeah, not too little and not too much. And I think that's the important balance that we really want to be acknowledging because, yeah, more is very often not better. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That's right. So I just wanted to come back around to hormones, if that's okay. You briefly mentioned that. Yeah, amazing. You briefly mentioned um, acne in teens, um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, whether it's milk or dairy in general on the impact or yes, on our hormones. Mm. Well, I think it's a great, it's a great question and definitely uh, warrants further investigation for lots of, for lots of people, because again, this isn't the case with every single person. You know, you can see some kids, consume dairy like there's no tomorrow in fact like they're actually attached to the udder of a cow Mm -hmm. and they have no problems at all uh, from a skin or hormone perspective you've got other kids who are so sensitive to it like they might have a bowl full of ice cream or they might have maybe some yogurt on their banana after school or maybe some cheese and some crackers and then they break out into significant amounts of you know inflammatory big red pussy pimples um, and that's that's a huge big problem for them. And then you've got other girls, you know, developing women who could consume as much dairy as they like and never have a problem with their menstrual cycle or their skin. They've got other girls that actually consume, you know, moderate amounts of dairy and it really impacts on their uh, risks associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome and, and the like. And so th- th- it's not a blanket thing, but it's just something that we should all be considering. And so, yes, there will be hormones that come through in the milk. Absolutely. It's a, it's a product, it's a byproduct of breastfeeding from a cow. Of yes. course, there's going to be stuff in there. Um, but at the same time, there'll be other analogs in there that mimic the way in which the human body would normally um, produce hormones and other substrates that come through into the body that, that affect the way that our body actually is working um, that will be affecting it. So if you're stuck with you know, hormone issues or skin problems or you know, any, any of the things that we just spoke about, then it's worth considering whether or not there is a link there with hormones and your dairy consumption. Um, and, and this is where Steph and, and Ali and in, in your mm-hmm. practice there, Steph, um, would look at those sorts of things. Yeah. Yep, definitely. I think, again, a really important area to explore because, you know, everyone is going to be different, um, but I feel like it's probably not spoken about. The other um, area that I'm finding quite interesting from an individual standpoint does circle back around to the inflammatory conversation that we're having um, but this time more related to our body fat so I have a lot of clients that would come to me for weight loss um, and we do LCHF and we you know address their underlying metabolic issues and and work on their gut and so on and so forth Um, and there is a, a percentage of clients who just don't get the results that we would expect or, um, you know, there's a, at the time, a bit of a undiagnosed roadblock and nine times out of 10, if we get them to take 30 days off dairy or or stop making their black coffee with cream or whatever it might be, that's where the ball really starts rolling. So we've got to acknowledge, you know, definitely the lactose, absolutely the insulinogenic effect, which we spoke about, 
Um, but also the, if it is going to be an inflammatory trigger for you, that can really impair your ability to burn fat and you've got to explore that. I agree. Mm. I agree. I 100% agree. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I, again, this kind of goes back to the whole concept that, you know, one eating program doesn't fit the whole of the population. And so we, there's an expectation of results in a rounded eating program that we might prescribe, but then there's the variation of that eating program for every single person because every single person is an individual. The challenge that we face in our industry, Steph, is that because we deal with individuals and not rats in a lab, um, it's very difficult for us to actually prove um, that a particular approach is you know, is the only way to go or is the best way to go. And so the gold standard in around research um, and evidence is meant to be a double-blind placebo-controlled study. Mm -hmm. Um, But it doesn't apply to humans. The only way that can apply to humans is if you block or stop a function within the body. So if you block a function by throwing in a tablet, for example, then you've got a predictable result. And so that can be measured and then that will be, um, I don't know, you'll get data that you can then draw conclusions from and then that becomes a double-blind placebo-controlled study. But you can't do that with food as an intervention because there's other things that um, contribute to the effect of food on lifestyle and contribute to the effect of weight loss um, is, you know, that are separate and individual from food. So we need to have a multifaceted approach to this and the acknowledgement that yes, we've you and I and all the other nutritionists around that we also subscribe to in terms of, you know, the approach that they take and the naturopaths that, you know, are, are using, you know, good sound approaches to, to diet. We're all using that as a basis. And then off the back of that, we're trying to make sure that it's individualized for each of our individual patients. Mm. Um, and that's a really important thing. Yeah. Beautiful message. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. Um, I've kind of got two more rapid fire questions on the topic for today. And I think we might put a bit of a call out for questions or other areas that we we could explore in part two, perhaps. Um, But yeah, my final two questions were really to talk about just a little bit more about yogurts and their probiotic nature, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's some yogurts that are actually probiotic. Um, and by the word, the word probiotic means contains bacteria. Mm. It's not just something that, you know, you can say, you know, it's probiotic. Like some of the kombuchas that we've got out in the marketplace are not probiotic. We can talk about that another time. Um, <laughs> there are, you know, kombuchas out there that are commercialized now that now don't contain uh, much bacteria at all. In fact, when they've been tested in labs, they contain about the same amount of bacteria as your normal drinking water. So there's not a whole lot of extra probiotic nourishment to it. There is also an assumption that probiotics work on a quantity perspective. And so the larger the amount of bacteria put into our body, the better the effect. And for some um, instances, that is the case. But a probiotic food is a food that actually puts into the body a a bacteria that's known to exist in the gastrointestinal system and in the body as a commensal bacteria, a bacteria that's meant to exist, and uh, and then can continue to stimulate the growth of other bacteria um, and itself can set up cultures. And so that's a probiotic, um, you know, I suppose that, that's what gets the probiotic label. 
And we see that in some of our yogurts around. So there's a few yogurts. I don't know whether or not we need to go into the brand names of them, but what you're looking for is a strain specificity. Um, and so there's only a couple of yogurts on the marketplace that actually detail the strain of bacteria that they use. Um, some bacteria um, are, are only good for the initiation of the culture of the, of the yogurt. And so they get the yogurt going and then that's as good a job as what they can ever do. But there's other bacteria like Lactobacillus rhamnosus LGG or Lactobacillus BB12 um, or Bifidobacterium 12. And, and so we look at those um, bacteria and they have a profound effect on the gastrointestinal system. They're probiotic by nature and they're found in our yogurts. And so we can actually use yogurt to nourish our body, but it doesn't mean that you've got to eat a whole tub. It's just small exposure over long periods of time of of bacteria will bring about a cultural change or a, a shift in your microbiome. So you've got to look out for the strain specificity. And you and I have spoken about that before, Steph. Yeah, we sure have. And again, I think that's key because there are so many yogurts, like obviously nearly all of them are going to have certain probiotic strains on the label because it went into the initial process. Does that mean it's even alive and left available at the end in the product that you're consuming? Often it's not. So then there's that confusion around that, you know, obviously it's on the ingredients list and we're telling people yeah. to read that. Um, yes. But yeah, are you getting it in the end product? Is it going to be, you know, influential and um, positive for your microbiome? And that's something that I think is quite confusing in the health space. I think it's really confusing. I really do. And, and we see, you know, there's new derivatives of different types of yogurts that have been brought into the marketplace. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's actually a company out there that's a very well-known yogurt manufacturer um, and they were going to remove their probiotic strain from their, um, from their yogurt because they believed that people weren't buying the yogurt because of the probiotic strain. And, uh, and, and I, was, I was made aware of this and, and you know, lightly petitioned uh, through the person that told me that this yogurt company would retain it and continue to use it, um, but use it in their marketing. Wow. But there's yogurts out there that actually do have probiotic cultures, like ones that I mentioned before, like LGG and BB12, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they don't put it on their label. In fact, they don't even promote that they're probiotic uh, because they don't think it's actually a selling point. But mm-hmm. I, I think their marketing team's got it wrong um, and that uh, they should be promoting it because I think if, our listeners knew which yogurts actually did contain a probiotic culture that was beneficial, then it would actually help shift their their spending. Yeah, I totally agree. So our listeners can let us know if they have any um, other questions and we'll factor that into part two. My final question, if I could just sneak it in, is any thoughts on why we're perhaps seeing this increase in sensitivity to food such as dairy? Mm, Well, I think we've become very, very limited, Steph, in um, our exposure uh, to, to different foods. And yeah. so our, the, the bandwidth for, for the types of foods that we've, we're putting into our diet or into our mouths is, has narrowed significantly. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have um, a whole lot of diversity in our diet. Mm-hmm. And so we just eat one particular protein or maybe it's two. So let's say we're having two proteins from dairy and maybe another protein from wheat. If that's the three main proteins and people go, oh, yeah, but I feed my kids sausages. Well, in your sausage, 50% of it's wheat, right? So you kind of go, you're just getting more 
of the same protein thrown into the into the mix. So it we've got to look for variety of protein exposure um, so that we can and, and carbohydrate exposure and fat exposure. Like it doesn't have to just be from one source. Multiple sources of macronutrients are absolutely paramount for a healthy body and a healthy diet. Uh, if we continue to narrow down and keep our bandwidth low or narrow with the, the spectrum of foods that we implement or that we introduce to our children, they're going to mount responses to those particular foods. Um, yeah. and, and so we have to be mindful of that. Plus early exposure to antibiotics, plus the use of the contraceptive pill and anything else that's going to be disrupting to the microbiome. Those sorts of um, interventions will affect the way in which our body deals with um, you know, our exposures in the environment, whether it's an internal exposure from food or an external exposure from chemicals, um, our body will be affected by interventions. And so we've got to be mindful of that as well. Yeah, so true. Sometimes it can just be the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, because there's so many other inflammatory um, triggers that we're exposed to, or if it's, you know, on top of stress or, you know, lowered immunity or whatever it might be in this day and age. So yeah, definitely food variety and diversity, very important. But have you got thoughts on it, Steph? What's your thinking around it? On the increased sensitivity? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it is the the collectiveness of it, definitely, um, that we are exposed to a lot of inflammatory triggers. We potentially have, you know, this relative degree of dysbiosis that impacts our ability to tolerate certain foods. And then I also think yeah. that, you know, dairy is very different to what it was when maybe even I was a child. So it's, yeah, it comes back to the industry and, and, and profits and that whole conversation of, of vested interest because that's where big food wins. And yeah. that's why it's really important that we keep spreading this knowledge because, you know, it's similar to gluten. People always say to me, you know, oh, I never had a problem with gluten as a child or when I go even kale, you know, when he goes to um, to the south of France, he, he's fine eating certain gluten products. And, you know, it, it's it's apples and oranges often when we look at the comparison because of how things are processed, what they're sprayed with, how you mentioned milk is mixed and created to be purely constant even when we're looking at different regions and different cows. Like there's yeah. quite a lot involved really. There's a heap involved. There's so much involved. It's not just as simple as rocking into the local supermarket um, and picking up a you know a carton of milk and going, oh great, I've got myself a really great quality milk here. But if we're led to believe um, the marketing spin and the hype, um, without questioning the marketing the spin and the hype, and I think you know as Australians and anywhere else in the world, we if you're listening to this particular podcast from Steph then you're discerning enough to ask questions as to whether or not it's true. The label claims, mm. you know, is the marketing telling me the truth or am I actually being a little bit hoodwinked here? Um, and it, this is not only the dairy industry. It could also be the soft drink industry and the alcoholic beverage industry. It could be the pharmaceutical industry. It could be the medical industry. It could be you know, no industry is immune from marketing. Yeah. And so you kind of got to then ask yourself the question, okay, what is it that I need to hear and who else could I be asking or listening to to help me make a better decision? 
Awesome. So cool. I just love chatting with you, Damo. This was an awesome topic. So as I mentioned, if our listeners have um, additional questions, we can definitely get you back on for part two. So please reach out to me and, and I'll filter those through for our next episode. Yep. Very happy. Very happy to do that, Steph. I love chatting with you, Steph. And thank you for asking questions. And then, you know, I, I, I sometimes I feel like I go on a bit of a rant and, and <laughs> speak all of my thoughts and don't let you, to, you know, chime in. So maybe I need to hear more from you so you can actually help shape my thoughts and beliefs around this sort of stuff too. Oh, I'm enjoying the conversation. I don't think anyone rants more than I do. So it felt very <laughs> soft and <laughs> yeah, no, loved it. Absolutely loved it. So we'll um, have you back on again very soon. And thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Steph. See ya. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. We hope you enjoyed this Wellness Couch podcast. Did you know we've launched a brand new Facebook group where you can chat about any episode you like with a tribe of like-minded people? The group is called The Wellness Couch Tribe and it's an inspirational digital meeting place to connect with like-minded wellness lovers just like you. To locate it and to come join us, simply search for The Wellness Couch Tribe wherever you enjoy Facebook. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the